This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. So yeah, it's exciting to be able to gather together and to celebrate something as crazy and as special as the resurrection. And I don't know how, but I don't preach often here. And so somehow I've been able to preach the past couple of Easter's. And so that's fun for me. I'm super thankful to be here and be able to um, teach and worship with you guys through a passage like this that's so amazing. And so before we jump in, uh, let's spend some time in prayer asking the Spirit to teach our hearts. Father, um, it's so awesome to be able to gather here and to reflect on a truth as, as amazing as your resurrection, that once you died, even the way you died, you didn't stay dead. You defeated death itself and you rose to new life. And so we get to gather here and, and reflect on that and consider what that means to our hearts. And so I pray this morning, um, I just pray for each of us as we all gather here with our own things that we have going on. And uh, just as your disciples uh, were at a point of hopelessness and despair, we all have our own baggage that we bring. And so whether that those are distractions, good things that take our attention away from you, or whether they're things that are difficult and we're tempted to, to have no hope in those things, I pray that you would instruct our hearts, that you would draw us into your presence, that you would, like you did with your disciples, encourage them and draw them to remember your words and promises that you spoke and that you fulfilled with your resurrection. I pray that you would, by those words, draw us into your presence. So Spirit, I teach that you would, I pray that you would teach our hearts. I pray that you would soften them as they're often so hard. We need your Spirit to teach us. And so I pray that you would, um, yeah, guide us to reflect on this amazing reality of your resurrection, that you would cause our hearts to, to burn within us for a passion for you. So it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So um, while the purpose of today is to celebrate the resurrection, we gather today already with a spirit of, of celebration. And so because we know that around 2,000 years ago, that our Lord rose from the dead. But uh, as we start, as we kind of jump into our text this morning, that wasn't the situations of the disciples. And so if you remember, we gathered together on Friday and we read through uh, all of the things that happened to Jesus, the tragic death that he died and the, the trial that he endured that wasn't even a just trial at all. And so uh, we read about all of that and uh, we left as Jesus's dead body was placed in the grave and sealed with a stone. And so as the sun rose on Easter morning, that's where the disciples were. And so we've been going through Luke for the past uh, five or so months, since a little bit before Advent. And we've been uh, seeing how Jesus has been walking with his disciples. They've, for the past three years of their life, they've done everything with this man who's their teacher, who they're convinced is, is the Christ, who Jesus himself says is the Christ. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that title today, but they're convinced that he is the coming king who is going to bring in a kingdom of peace and justice that will never end. And so they devote three years of their life to following this man around, to sitting at his feet, to learning, learning with him and uh, learning from him and seeing all the things that he does as his kingdom breaks into the present reality. And then 
They watch in horror as the events of the past few days unfold, and he meets a death that's incredibly painful. And in their minds, this is a king that they see now hanging on a cross. In their minds, this isn't what a king who's bringing a permanent and forever kingdom should look like. And in their minds, they're losing hope. And so he talks last Sunday. Last Sunday, if you remember, was, was Palm Sunday, where Jesus entered into, into Jerusalem with cries of, finally, our king has come. This Messiah is the king that the people have been waiting on for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so finally, he's coming into Jerusalem. And so, but then as the, as the events of that week unfold, we talked about how the enemy was working to undo Jesus's works, how he was working against him to try to thwart whatever plan he had going on. And so also, uh, he was working to uh, disrupt Jesus' followers, the disciples as well. And so here at this moment, it's as, as Jesus had already breathed his last, as his dead body laid in a tomb, it seems like the enemy had won. It seems like this king who was coming to bring justice and peace that would reign for forever was dead and they've lost hope. And so I know that none of us, we can't really relate to that. None of us have, have, have followed a guy around for three years thinking he was the savior of the world, only to see him die a, a gruesome death. But I think if we, if we put ourselves in, this, in the shoes of the disciples, I think that we can relate to them more than we think. Because as followers of Christ, as believers, we believe that the resurrection actually happened that it's a historical fact, that Jesus in his physical body rose from the dead. Amen. It wasn't just a, a spiritual idea. It was a physical reality. And so Paul even says in 1 Corinthians, he says that if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. I shouldn't be up here. And he also says our faith is futile. And he says if Jesus didn't actually raise from the dead, then we of all people are most to be pitied. And so we believe as believers, that, as, as followers of Christ, that Jesus actually rose from the dead. But how often in our lives do we live as though there was no resurrection? How often do we, just like Jesus' disciples, forget his words and his promises? And that can range from just daily allowing the things of this world to take precedence and weight in our mind uh, by uh, seeking lesser things to make us happy and s trying to find peace and joy in things that are not Christ, that are less than Christ, all the way to overtly doubting whether the resurrection happened at all. And so the resurrection is, is a difficult truth. I mean, none of us have seen somebody raised from the dead and stay alive. None of us have ever seen that. The scripture tells us that it takes a work of the spirit for us to, to believe the resurrection. And so it's no wonder that us in our broken, sinful nature doubt the resurrection and might think that it never happened. Our sinful nature tempts us to forget the things that Jesus said. And so I think that uh, we can relate to the disciples here more than we think we can. But during Easter here, Jesus the beauty is that he meets his people where they are. He meets them in the midst of their hopelessness. 
to remind them of the beauty and the glory of the resurrection and what that means for them. And so when they're being buffeted by the enemy to forget his words and promises, Jesus encourages them to remember. And so that's where we're going today. The risen Jesus, he draws his people to remember his words and promises. And he also draws them to remember scripture's words and promises. And so today, that's where we're going to spend some time uh, talking through. And then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what that means. And so let's get to the text. And so the disciples here are, um, they have lost all hope. And as we read in the text, we're going we're gonna to see that all over their faces. But so yeah, uh, 24 verse 1. And then kind of, I know that uh, we talk about this every Sunday, but as we go, um, the, the scriptures in Luke are not going to be up here. Uh, we have some Bibles and whatnot that are kind of scattered out. Uh, we also have some Bibles over there on the table if you want to grab one. Uh, but whenever we go outside of Luke, then uh, we'll put those up on the screen. Um, but yeah, so uh, Luke 24 verse 1 says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And so we've, been, we've spent a lot of time in Luke. Uh, Luke actually is, is the most thorough of all the gospel writers. He, he takes a lot of notes and has a lot of details, so his chapters are long. But here you see him getting even more specific. He's giving all these details the first day of the week, early dawn, the time. He tells them who went to the tomb, which we find out later in this chapter was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James. So three women went to the tomb. And so he's given this level of detail because what he's about to say is really important, and he wants you to remember these details. And so this was the first day of the week, which is after the Sabbath. And so if you remember uh, Good Friday, we left, and they said they just placed Jesus' body in the tomb, and it was getting dark. And that's when the Sabbath starts, at sundown on Friday. And so uh, they said on Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. And so now it's after the Sabbath. They can then again, they can again work. And so they, at, at first light, they come and they show up at Jesus' tomb. And these three women, these women were the last ones at the cross. And now they're the first ones here at the tomb. And it says they took the spices that they had prepared, which typically whenever you buried somebody, you would honor their body by putting spices and anointing them. Uh, but since it was a Sabbath, they went home and they rested from that. So now they're, they're coming to, to respect Jesus's body and honor his body with, with these spices. Um, and so then they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, and so as we go throughout this passage, there are a few words that I think our English language doesn't really capture the full meaning of. Um, and I notice it more with this passage for some reason. I'm not sure why. Uh, but this word perplexed, like when I hear the word perplexed, I generally think of like, oh, it's like a puzzle. Like I'm going to like figure it out until all the pieces fit. I'm just a little like... Pensive, thinking about it. That's not what they mean here. This word for perplexed is, is like a confusion that drives them to deep anxiety. And so this, this is an anxiety that they're feeling in their confusion here. And so the thing is that they, over the past three days, have seen terrible things happen to Jesus. They've seen him humiliated. They've seen him tortured. They've seen him hung up on a cross and hung left to die. And they've seen him breathe his last. And they've seen him be put in a tomb. And now they're hiding away for fear of a similar fate with themselves. 
And now they get to the tomb to honor his body and it's gone. And so this confusion is stirring up more anxiety in them where they're thinking, no, there's, this is supposed to be done. Now there's more humiliation. Now there's more of this that we have to worry about. But then Luke says, behold, he says, look, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, read here, terrified, they couldn't even look at the angels. They bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you seek the living among the dead? Amen. And this question really reads, why do you seek the living one among the dead? The angels knew who they came to see. The angels knew that they brought their spices to honor Jesus' dead body. And their question, if you're thinking it sounds like they're kind of scolding them, like they are. They said, why do you seek the living one among the dead? The implication here is you, you ought to know better. And then they continue. He says, he's not here, but he's risen. Do you remember how he told you while you're still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And so the angels, as they're in the tomb with them, they, they ask them to remember. Do you remember the words that he said? And then they quote Jesus and so um, they, it, it almost reads like a creed, like a statement of beliefs here that the angels are saying to them. Um, Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And so we've been going through Luke for a while now. And so it's been a minute since we talked through these passages, but Jesus actually did warn the disciples three different times that he was gonna suffer, that he was gonna die, and that the third day he would raise again from the dead. And so I want us to uh, go back to those passages really quick because I think uh, it sheds a, a lot of light on what's going on here. And so the first one of these is in Luke chapter nine, starting in verse 21. Um, but to kind of frame this a little bit, Jesus times his conversations with his disciples, warning, him, warning them about these things, where he does on purpose. It's because whenever he tells the disciples that he's gonna suffer and that he's gonna die and on the third day raise again, it's when these expectations for him are at an all-time high. And also when these expectations for him are at an all-time level of being misguided. And so the context of this first talk that he has with his disciples, Jesus had just fed the 5,000. And so then afterwards, he's, he's, uh, everybody's amazed that he just fed 5,000 with so little food. And so that he's with his disciples. And so his, he asks his disciples, um, who, do the, who do the crowd say that I am? And so some of them say, oh, I've heard John the Baptist. Another says, oh, another, I've heard Elijah. Another says, you're a prophet of old that's come back and kind of reincarnated himself into you. And so, but then he says, what do you, who do you say that I am? And without skipping a beat, Peter, he says, the Christ of God. Amen. The Christ of God. And Luke doesn't go here, but we, we get a little bit more insight in Matthew's gospel into this conversation in response to that, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Peter, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And he says, yes, you're right, Peter. I am the Christ of God. 
But Jesus says what he says next on purpose because Peter had an idea of what the Christ of God was supposed to do. And Jesus says what he does next on purpose because he just said that he is the Christ of God. And so listen in, in Luke 9, 21, uh, starting in 22, sorry. First off, he, he, he asked them, don't tell anybody about this. Don't tell anybody that I am the Christ of God. But then he says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so he, he level sets their expectation on what the Christ of God has come to do and how the Christ of God has come to work. And so then later in the same chapter, uh, chapter nine, starting in verse 44, Jesus had just healed a boy with an unclean spirit. And it says that they were, they were marveling at him. And so then he says, uh, as they were marveling at him, he says to his disciples, he says, let these words sink into your ears. When do you hear Jesus say that? You don't. Here's the only place that he says that. He says, let these words sink into your ears. What I'm about to say is very, very important. He says, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And Luke says, they, they didn't understand this saying and they were too afraid to ask about it. And the third time is uh, in Luke chapter 18. They're, they're nearing Jerusalem and uh, you, can, you can kind of feel the anticipation build as Jesus gets closer and closer to Jerusalem because uh, they know that once they get to Jerusalem, something's gonna go down. And so as they near Jerusalem, uh, Jesus, he says in uh, Luke 18, uh, starting in verse 31, he's talking just to the 12. He says to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. And Luke says again, but they understood none of these things and they didn't grasp what was said. And so Jesus three times was very specific about what was gonna happen, about how the Christ of God had come to work. And it entailed him being handed over to the authorities, being tortured, being humiliated, being hung up on a cross to die, but then on the third day, rising. So he said all of those things. He was really specific. And so back in our story in Luke 24, I love verse eight. The angels, they say, remember these things. Remember how he told you these things? And he, they basically quote Jesus to them. And verse eight says, and they remembered his words. And from there, returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and all the rest. And so before they were remembering his words, whenever they were forgetting his words, when they were failing to remember Jesus's words and promises, they were in a state of crippling anxiety, not knowing what was gonna happen next. But then... The angels reminded them of Jesus' words and promises, and their anxiety turned into a confident joy. So much so that they went straight over to tell all the other disciples what had happened, that there was this empty tomb, that they saw these angels, and the angels said that he's alive. And so do you see the shift in their demeanor from a state of hopelessness to a state of joy and confidence? 
And so I love how uh, David Garland uh, sums up what was going on with the disciples whenever they were failing to uh, remember his promises. He says, failing to remember Jesus's words and promises leads to despair. That's really simple, but you can see that all over the disciples here as their despair leads them to a, to a crippling anxiety. And so I wanna be clear, first off, um, despair doesn't mean grief. Despair doesn't mean sadness. Despair doesn't mean mourning. You can grieve, you can mourn, you can be sad, yet have hope. Despair is the absence of hope. Despair is despondency. Despair can lead to things like crippling anxiety, like fear, like anger. Despair can lead to all sorts of fruit. And so here, before, while they were forgetting Jesus' words and promises, you see the fruit of their forgetfulness in their anxiety. You see their despair in their anxiety. But then as they remember Jesus' words and promises, you see that despair turn to confidence and joy. But what about our lives? What about us? What about those times when we don't live our life in light of the beautiful reality of the resurrection? Where are we tempted to despair? What areas of our life do we feel like there's no hope in? These could be personal, they could be global. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world around us that would cause us not to hope, would cause us to despair. And we all have our personal things that are going on. Some could even be good things. Like I hope in something else that I have going on and all my attention and all my devotion is in this thing that I really like right now. That could lead to a despair of the resurrection because ultimately our hope and our joy is anchored in Christ alone. And so we all have our own personal things too. Where are we tempted to hopelessness? Where are we tempted to despair? And so Jesus implores us to remember his words and his promises here. And so how can Jesus' words and promises give you peace and joy in the place of your despair? And so we have four books of our Bible Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where Jesus outlines all of these beautiful things about God's good character, about who he is. And he outlines all these things about who we are as people. And he also outlines how God interacts with his people, how he cares for his people, how he loves his people, how he pursues his people. How can these words and promises speak to these areas of your life where you're living in despair, not in light of the resurrection? The thing that gives Jesus' words power, the, things that, the thing that gives Jesus' words in these gospels truth and certainty is the fact that he is risen from the dead. Because he rose from the dead, we can take every single word that he says to the bank. We can be certain that what he says in his gospels is absolutely true about us. Liars do not raise from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. 
So how can his words bring you peace and joy in the place of your despair? And so now the women have gone back. They've told the disciples that there's an empty grave and that they saw angels and the angels said that he's alive. And so now these other disciples who are sitting in this room, also in despair, now their despair turns to joy and they burst out into the streets and they go and proclaim that Jesus has risen, right? No, <laughs> not at all. It says, Luke says in verse 11, these words to them, they seemed like idle, an idle tale. And that's another one of those words that's really dialed back. The word idle tale, we use that to refer to the type of speech that you get from somebody who's mentally unstable. And so they considered these words babble, nonsense. And another, two dictionaries actually use the word humbug, which we, we have a Scrooge of Christmas. <laughs> now we have a Scrooge of Easter, and that's the disciples. <laughs> and so it says humbug. And Luke says they did not believe them. This is an active disbelief. They chose not to believe the women because they thought that their tale was worthless. They thought they had gone to the grave. They saw the empty tomb, and they fell off of a crazy cliff. And so they didn't believe him so much that two of the disciples got up and they left. We don't know if they're going home. We don't know if they're going to a friend's house or somewhere, but they're on their way to Emmaus. They're walking away from Jerusalem. They're leaving everything that they've been wor working towards for these past three years, they're leaving it behind. And so they're walking on this road and we see that as, as, they're, as they're going, they're, they're talking and discussing. They're having a heated, they're debating each other. And so they're having a discussion, trying to make sense of everything that just happened. They're confused. And we'll see in a bit, they're, they're hopeless. And so uh, we see that as they're talking and discussing, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And so Jesus himself in his resurrected body, this is the first time we see Jesus resurrected in Luke. Um, he just catches up to him while they're talking and debating each other. And then he begins a line of questioning that's so powerful. He says, what's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? In other words, he caught up to them. They're having a heated conversation. And he says, what are you guys talking about? And their reaction says it all says they stood still, looking sad. They stopped their walk, dead in their tracks, looking sad. They didn't want to answer Jesus. They didn't want to relive the horror of everything that they'd experienced over the past three days as their teacher hung on a cross and died. And Cleopas makes that clear. One of the disciples is named Cleopas. He answers, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? You see the irony here? It's so thick. He says, don't make me tell you. Tell me that you know. Jesus' next question, he says, what things? Jesus. Jesus asks, what things? The irony here is that Cleopas asked him, he said, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here? 
The irony is he's asking this to Jesus. Jesus is the only one who knows exactly what happened here. He knows exactly what it meant. Yet Jesus, he asks, what things? Jesus isn't after information here. He knows what happened. Jesus is after something else. He's after their hearts. In asking what things, he's forcing them to reckon with their thoughts and their feelings. He's forcing them back to relive everything that they have experienced. And their answer tells us a lot. They say, uh, picking up in verse 19, he says, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And so first off, previously in Luke's gospel, Jesus is the Christ of God. He's the coming king who would have a kingdom that would never end. But now he's still great. It's clear that he's done amazing things, but he is a prophet like many who have gone before him. He's a prophet. He's been demoted here. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Do you hear the similarity of language? All the things, what did Jesus say? He said that he was going to be delivered up to death and be crucified and die, but that he would raise again. So just like the women at the grave, these disciples also had forgot what Jesus had said. They forgot his words. They forgot his promises. And so these are the facts so far that Jesus was handed over, was crucified, and died. But now they get to their hearts, picking up in verse 21. They said, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. That's what the Christ does. Yes, besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And so there is a small, tiny glimmer of hope here. Said so more, some of our women, they saw the empty grave. They said they saw a vision of angels. The angels said that he's alive. And then they say that even some of our own, they went to the tomb and they saw just that. And so Peter, we didn't read about this. Peter did go to the tomb. He saw it empty. But then they say, in probably the most ironic statement yet, he said, but him, we didn't see. We didn't see him, though. And so we don't believe. That's the implication of that. As they're sitting right next to Jesus. The irony is so thick there. And so... Now Jesus moves from questioning to engaging them with the truth. And I love it how it's only after they've wrestled with their thoughts. It's only after they've confessed what they're struggling with. Jesus draws that out of them. He, he forces them to confess those things that their unbelief and their, their forgetfulness, they don't even know that they're being forgetful, but they are. And so he says, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all the prophets that to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And so the rebuke of the angels was pretty mild. It was a question. This one's a little bit more sharp. And so he rebukes them for being, being slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. And then he says, oh, sorry, I lost my place. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? 
So he says, first off, he uses that title, the Christ himself. He says, you're not believing what the prophets had said. You're not believing what the words of scripture have said about the Christ, the one who's coming, the king who will bring a kingdom that will have no end. And when he says that he should suffer these things, he's talking first off about all of those things that these two disciples said, that he was tortured, that he was nailed to a cross, that he suffered an excruciating death. But then also Jesus suffered more than that. Jesus suffered on the cross the wrath of God for the sins of humanity. He's the only one who knows, actually knows what it's like and cries out in truth, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's the only man to be living, to know what it is like to be forsaken by God. Because on the cross, he not only suffered physically the judgment of man, but he suffered spiritually the judgment of God himself. And he says, was it not necessary that he suffer these things as a precursor to his glory? His glory begins now. He's risen from the dead and he gets to step into his glory. And we'll talk next week about how he ascends into glory even more. The first step is he's been resurrected. So he enters into his glory. But he says, was it not necessary? Don't you remember from all the scriptures that this needed to happen? This is how it works with God's Christ. And so I love again, uh, David Garland has a quote here. He says, what the disciples didn't realize is that the supposed ruin of all their hopes, which was Christ's death, is actually the fulfillment of them. Amen. And he says that all these things are explained in Scripture. And we say, we see next, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, which is another way of saying, beginning with Genesis and going all the way through the whole Old Testament, which was the available scriptures at that time, going all the way through it, uh, he explained, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so Luke, Luke is so detailed, right? Like Luke writes so much about all these events. But this, this conversation, we don't get any more than that. That's what we get. But we do have a few things. We have these, this group of followers, these disciples, who before, when Jesus told him about his death and his resurrection, blank stares. They don't understand it. And they even say, no, you can't do that, Jesus. That's not how the Messiah works. They even stand up and oppose him. But later, when they're in talking about his death and his resurrection, they, what do they do? They navigate through the scriptures. They show how the Old Testament points to Christ. They, and not only his resurrection, but also his death and how it was necessary. And so they, they, in walking through that, they show how all of the Old Testament points to this one key moment of Jesus suffering and dying and raising from the dead. They talk about how all of scripture finds its fulfillment in this moment of Christ's death and then Christ's resurrection. And so first off, we have the apostles who help us with that because 
you have to think that the way that they're explaining it to us is the way that Jesus explained it to them. But we also, this gives us a way to look at the scriptures. This gives us a way to go back into the Old Testament. And this gives us a way to look for and find Christ all over these pages. Jesus is saying, is he's urging his disciples to remember the words and the promises found in scripture that point to him, to his death, to his suffering, and to his resurrection. And so I would love to spend hours and hours going through all the passages that I think Jesus would have gone through here because they had a long walk. I mean, I have to think that Jesus caught up with them towards the beginning of the walk, then they continue to walk like seven miles. Um, but, and as you're talking about things like this, like you tend to walk slower, you know? So they had a long time to walk. Um, but I'm gonna take us to one passage. And I'm gonna take us here because Jesus actually applied this passage to himself just two chapters before. And so I wanna take us to Isaiah 53, which... If you're with us on Friday, we are all over Isaiah 53. But I want to I highlight a few verses. So first off, uh, Isaiah 53, verse 4. And so just for a little context, Isaiah was written 800 years before Christ was born, more or less. And so, and this, this song particularly is about one who's called the servant of the Lord. And Jesus in Luke 24, he said that he was going to be numbered with the transgressors. And so here in 50, uh, Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4, 800 years before Jesus was born, he says, Surely he has borne our griefs. The servant of the Lord has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If that doesn't read like the necessity of Christ dying the death that he died, I don't know what it does. And then jumping ahead to verse 11. Really loud. It says, uh, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide spoil with the strong. Because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That doesn't speak to Christ's resurrection and current intercession for his people. I don't know what it's doing. So this is one among many, 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 many passages in the Old Testament where we get to find Christ. This is one of the many, many passages that Jesus walked and talked about as he walked with his disciples, pointing them to this moment where all of Scripture was fulfilled as he rose from the dead. back in our story you see that they, they end their walk and they get to Emmaus 
says that Jesus was going to keep going. But they say, no, like, come, come and eat with us. And they kind of like force him into to dinner. And so he sits down at the table with them. And it says that he sits down, he takes bread, he says a blessing, and he breaks the bread. He says, right then, they recognize him. And he disappears. And then they say, oh, while he was with us, while he was poor opening the scriptures to us, weren't our hearts burning within us? Say, shouldn't we have recognized him right then? But they didn't. When did they recognize him? They recognized him when they remembered him personally. And so scripture, there's so much value in remembering the words and the promises of scripture. There's so much value in, in coming to, to grips with God's good character and how it points us to Christ and all of his works and how he works to bring his people back to himself. But knowing Scripture is not the end in itself. Scripture is meant to bring us into the presence of our risen King, to recognize Him, to bring us peace and joy. And so you see also with these disciples, as soon as they recognize Him, they get up and where do they go? They go back to Jerusalem, back to that room where all the other disciples are, are huddled in hopelessness. But then they find that Jesus had also appeared to Peter. And they, they, they tell him, we, we saw Jesus on the road. He opened the scriptures to us. For them, the resurrection changed everything. And so for us, the resurrection changes everything still today. That truth remains unchanged. In the resurrection here, Jesus catches up to his disciples. He meets them where they are to draw them into his presence. He meets them where they are in their hopelessness and to draw them into peace and joy in his resurrected presence. And so because of the resurrection, Jesus' words and promises have to be. Because of the resurrection, the words and promises that we find in Scripture are true. Because of the resurrection, Jesus draws us in his resurrected body to remind us of his words and his promises, both from his mouth and in scripture. And in that, we see his presence through his peace and joy. And so how is Jesus catching up to you in those areas where you're tempted to hopelessness? How is Jesus reminding you to remember his words and promises? Amen. To remember the words and the promises of scripture that point to him and his goodness. First off, he's given us his word. And uh, I mean, that's one of our main points, to remember the words and the promises in scripture. So he's given us his word for a reason, to remind us of those things. And so uh, these, these words here, we don't know where to start, but this is filled with God's good character. So we can remember his words and promises that draw us into Christ's resurrected presence. Hebrews also tells us that Jesus, uh, he's risen and he sits right now at the right hand of God in his throne room, where he not only intercedes for us, but he also invites us into God's presence. And so how can we seek God's presence in all of our situations, in all of our circumstances? Because he hasn't designed us to glorify him, or have peace in him, or experience his presence in some things. 
has created us to glorify Him and find His presence in all things. Those things that are easy and fun and celebratory, and those things are difficult and hard. He reminds us to seek His presence in all things. We have access to God's own courtroom through Christ, who we've been as His people united to in His resurrected body. And so in uniting us to Christ, and also in addition to us having access to the throne room of God, we've also been united to each other. We've been united to the same body that is Christ. And so we weren't designed to, to function, to uh, seek God's presence alone. We were designed to seek God's presence together, to remind each other of his goodness, to remind each other of his accomplished work, to draw each other into his presence over and over again. So how are you relying on that community you've been united to as a child of God to draw you over and over again into God's presence? This isn't designed to be a comprehensive list, uh, but these, these are ways, these are avenues that Jesus could be catching up to you on your walk, reminding you that in times of your hopelessness, there is hope because he's risen from the dead. These are what we call means of grace, or avenues through which we experience Jesus' grace. And so the thing is that we need these things constantly, because we are so often prone to forget his words and promises that lead us into his presence. And the beauty of this is because he's resurrected, these are offered to us constantly. At every time of every day, in every situation we might find ourselves in, these are offered to us because he is risen. He's present.